From 1945 on, the United States was engaged in a global struggle against the Soviet Union. Millions of Americans believed that the Soviets had built an aggressive, expansionist empire that was plotting to undermine U.S. interests and values. They believed that the Soviets were actively remaking the world under communist ideology, an ideology that the Americans considered antithetical to their own values. For those who experienced World War II and the fight against totalitarian regimes under Hitler and Mussolini, the Soviet regime was just the latest enemy that had to be stopped. As we covered in our previous episodes, American presidents struggled with how to contain the Soviet menace. We saw how Harry S. Truman instituted the policy of containment to limit the Soviet Union's expansion and ultimately to force it to change its ways to align with American values and interests. We saw how his successors generally maintained that policy but modified it based on their own views and in response to changing circumstances. We saw how American foreign policy changed over multiple administrations and even within a single administration. Presidents would often oscillate between taking a hardline stance while other times reaching out in hopes of reducing tensions. We saw how these presidents struggled with the burden that the Cold War presented since both sides had thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other and the ability to inflict nuclear destruction on the other side. The Cold War was a costly endeavor as both sides raced to outdo each other by building better ships, tanks, planes, and missiles, by forging more allies, and by racking up successes in different areas, like in space. Billions of dollars in taxes were raised and spent to create stronger militaries, and on projects promoting national prestige, like sending men to the moon. When the Cold War entered its fourth decade, some wondered if this was all worth it, whether both sides could sustain the competition, and whether they were hurtling towards nuclear war and civilizational extinction. By the 1970s, the Soviets had in many ways caught up with the United States in terms of nuclear capability, and sometimes exceeded the U.S. in certain areas. Many Americans accepted that the Soviets, no matter how threatening or cruel, were here to stay. Whenever uprisings broke out in the Soviet world, whether it was in Budapest in 1956 or Prague in 1968, Moscow brutally suppressed it. There was no reason to think that they would change or could be defeated. The original goal of containment, to pressure the Soviets into changing their ways, seemed to some observers to be foolish and naive. Many observers, who were called realists, believed that the Soviet Union might last forever. They felt that the U.S. might as well accept that reality and make the best of it. In previous episodes, we saw President Richard Nixon reorient American policy towards one of realism, one that accepted that the Soviet Union was a fact of life and that relations could be improved if both sides recognized each other's so-called quote-unquote legitimate interests. Nixon implemented the policy of detente, one that featured numerous treaties with the Soviets, including one that limited the number of certain nuclear weapons that both sides could have. But many Americans remained dissatisfied with this change of policy. They felt that detente papered over the fact that the Soviets remained dangerous and aggressive, and that they couldn't be trusted to keep their word. 
Some Americans also felt that detente ignored their belief that the Soviets were an illegitimate force that imprisoned their own people, and that working with such a regime was, at best, naive, and at worst, immoral. One of those Americans was Ronald Reagan. Reagan had taken an unusual route to political prominence. He started out as an actor in the 1930s, and eventually became the host of a TV show. But he also found himself becoming more and more involved in politics over time. He was the head of the Actors' Union in the 1940s and 50s, and then became the Republican governor of California in the 60s. He became the face of a rising conservative movement, a movement that wanted to halt the expansion of government at home and communism abroad. Although conservatism was gaining momentum, it had yet to go mainstream. Reagan had critics who called him a dunce, an intellectual lightweight, and who could give a great speech but had little command of nuance or policy. They also said that he was a right-wing radical who would destroy years of Democrat policies and start World War III. They scoffed at his lack of an Ivy League education, the fact that he had strong moral convictions, and his many years as an actor in Hollywood. But Ronald Reagan brushed off his critics. He had observed America's Cold War policies for years, and he felt that they were totally wrong. He saw what all the experts were saying, that detente was a good thing, and that the Soviet Union was here to stay. These experts were in the universities, in think tanks, and in government bureaucracies. They often went to America's best colleges. Included in their ranks were heavyweights like Henry Kissinger. Reagan sized them all up, and again, he said they were wrong. This former actor believed in something else, in something that virtually none of the experts believed, and what many of them would laugh at. The idea that the Soviet Union could change radically, that it might even collapse, and that America could make it happen. And he believed that to accept the Soviet Union as a fact of life was immoral. After being elected president in 1980, he sought to do something that most people thought impossible. He sought to win the Cold War. To this day, Reagan's role during the end of the Cold War, an event so critical in shaping the world we live in today, is hotly debated. Perhaps it's beyond anyone's ability to fully explain how and why something as complex as the fall of the Soviet Union happened. It is certainly beyond the scope of this episode, but we can try to trace the journey Reagan took as he strode upon the world stage. What Reagan did and intended to do in the fight against communism is the focus of this episode of This American President. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.
As I said earlier, Ronald Reagan took one of the unlikeliest paths to the presidency. He was different than anything people had ever seen before in their presidents. First, at 69, he was the oldest elected president up to that time. Most of his predecessors had been in their early to mid-50s, in the prime of their lives, and were very ambitious. John F. Kennedy had been 43 when he was elected president. In fact, Reagan was actually born before Kennedy, despite being elected 20 years after him. Reagan's age entering office may be easy to dismiss as unimportant, but when you think about it, it had to have had some impact on his approach to the presidency. He had more life experience than his predecessors. He seemed to approach his job without a desire to impress everyone with his intellect, his abilities, or his accomplishments, things you might see from a younger man. He was, to put it another way, secure in who he was and what he believed. Second, he wasn't a professional politician. Most of his predecessors started off very young in politics. FDR was 28 when he was first elected to office. Kennedy was 29, Nixon was 33, Ford was 36, and Carter was 38. They had spent most of their adult lives in politics, voting on bills, campaigning, and chasing for higher office. By contrast, Ronald Reagan was 55 years old when he was first elected to public office, so he had spent much of his life engaged in other lines of work. He had been an actor, a profession not usually seen as a route to politics, but this experience might not have been as irrelevant as one might think. As an actor and as the head of the actor's union, he was a prominent man engaged in a competitive and public industry. Politics came later, in middle age, a time when many people are thinking of retirement. But Reagan was compelled to enter politics because of what he saw was happening in the country. He seemed to have entered politics for a specific cause, not because he had spent his life craving for political power. For many elected officials, politics became an end in itself. They wanted to be recognized as a leader and to move up the political ladder. For Reagan, politics was not the end, but was a means. Reagan had humble beginnings. He was born in 1911 in Tampico, Illinois. His father, Jack, was a store owner and salesman. His mother, Nell, was a devout Christian who raised young Ronald and his brother, Neil, and inculcated in them the values of her faith. When you read about Reagan's upbringing, and even what Reagan himself said about it, you can almost picture the perfect, idyllic American childhood. He was active in school, played sports, and when he was in high school, he took a job as a lifeguard at the Rock River in Lowell Park, where he was said to have saved 77 people from drowning. Of course, not all was perfect. Reagan's father was said to have been an alcoholic. Money was often tight, and the family moved several times. But Reagan's prospects brightened when he went to Eureka College and majored in economics and sociology. He was an average student, but was very involved in many activities. He was on the football team, captain the swim team, and was student body president. He graduated in 1932, in the midst of the Great Depression. He was among that generation 
that began his career during some of the worst economic years in our country's history. He took work as a radio announcer for various stations, finally working for the Chicago Cubs baseball team. During a trip with the Cubs in 1937, Reagan visited California and ended up taking a screen test. His good looks and ease in front of the camera led to him signing a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. Ronald Reagan was now a Hollywood star. For the entirety of his career, from 1937 to 1964, he appeared in about 60 movies and over a dozen TV shows. He married another actress, Jane Wyman, in 1940. There's always been a bit of a misperception that Reagan was somehow a bad actor. He's often been described as a B-movie actor. But he was actually quite popular. At one point, he got the second highest amount of fan mail of any Warner Brothers actor, after Errol Flynn. And he was cast in movies with some of Hollywood's biggest names, like Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis. I imagine Reagan wasn't considered a bad actor, just not a great one. He may have been like one of those actors that you recognize because you've seen them in a bunch of movies, but you don't remember their name. Again, it doesn't mean that he was a bad actor or a laughingstock. Not everyone can be Clark Gable. Ronald Reagan would later be known as the face of modern conservatism, as the Republican president that future Republican presidential candidates would be measured against. But during this time, Reagan was a liberal Democrat. He voted for Democrat President Franklin D. Roosevelt in all four of his campaigns. Like millions of Americans, he admired FDR and was inspired by his optimism and charisma during the dark days of the Depression and World War II. He felt reassured when listening to FDR's famous fireside chats. Years later, when Reagan was president, he recalled the first time that he saw FDR in person. Franklin Roosevelt was the first president I ever saw. I remember the moment vividly. It was in 1936, a campaign parade in Des Moines, Iowa. What a wave of affection and pride swept through that crowd as he passed by in an open car, which we haven't seen a president able to do for a long time. A familiar smile on his lips, jaunty and confident. Drawing from us, Reservoirs of confidence and enthusiasm some of us had forgotten we had during those hard years. Maybe that was FDR's greatest gift to us. He really did convince us that the only thing we had to fear was fear itself. Reagan's later emphasis on the dangers of big government led many to say that he was attempting to undo FDR's legacy, his New Deal policies. Despite this, Reagan never ceased admiring FDR. When I interviewed Reagan's confidential assistant, Peggy Grandi, she recalled that Reagan still spoke fondly of Roosevelt, even if many of Reagan's supporters don't. When Roosevelt died during his fourth term in 1945 and was succeeded by Harry Truman, Reagan strongly supported him, even campaigning for Truman and appearing with him on stage during a rally. This is a recording Reagan made for President Truman. And later, more of Serenade to a Presidential Candidate by Jack Lawrence and Arnold Stang. But now to Ronald Reagan in Hollywood. This is Ronald Reagan speaking to you from Hollywood. You know me as a motion picture actor. But tonight I'm just a citizen. 
pretty concerned about the national election next month, and more than a little impatient with those promises the Republicans made before they got control of Congress a couple of years ago. I remember listening to the radio on election night in 1946. Joseph Martin, the Republican Speaker of the House, said very solemnly, and I quote, We Republicans intend to work for a real increase in income for everybody by encouraging more production and lower prices without impairing wages or working conditions. Unquote. Remember that promise, a real increase in income for everybody. But what actually happened? The profits of corporations have doubled, while workers' wages have increased by only one quarter. In other words, profits have gone up four times as much as wages. And the small increase workers did receive was more than eaten up by rising prices, which have also bored into their savings. The Republican promises sounded pretty good in 1946. But what has happened since then? since the 80th Congress took over. Prices have climbed to the highest level in history, although the death of the OPA was supposed to bring prices down through, quote, the natural process of free competition, unquote. Labor has been handcuffed by the vicious Taft-Hartley law. Social Security benefits have been snatched away from almost a million workers by the Gearhart bill. Fair employment practices, which had worked so well during wartime, have been abandoned. Veterans' pleas for low-cost homes have been ignored, and many people are still living in made-over chicken coops and garages. Tax reduction bills have been passed to benefit the higher-income brackets alone. The average worker saved only $1.73 a week. In the false name of economy, millions of children have been deprived of milk once provided through the federal school lunch program. This was the payoff of the Republicans' promises. And this is why we must have new faces in the Congress of the United States, Democratic faces. This is why we must elect not only President Truman, but also men like Mayor Hubert Humphrey of Minneapolis, the Democratic candidate for senator from Minnesota. Mayor Humphrey of 37 is one of the ablest men in public life. He's running against Joe Ball, who was a member of the Senate Labor Committee, helped write the Taft-Hartley law. The Republicans don't want to lose Ball, and they're spending a small fortune on his campaign. They've even sent Dewey and Warren out to Minneapolis to speak for him. President Truman knows the value of a man like Hubert Humphrey in the Senate, and he has been in Minneapolis, too, campaigning against Joe Ball. Mayor Humphrey and Ball are the symbols of the political battle going on in America today. While Ball is the banner carrier for Wall Street, Mayor Humphrey is fighting for all the principles advocated by President Truman, for adequate low-cost housing, for civil rights, for prices people can afford to pay, and for a labor movement freed of the Taft-Hartley law. I take great pride in presenting my friend from Minneapolis, Mayor Hubert H. Humphrey, candidate for United States Senator. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Reagan was also dabbling in Hollywood politics. 
1941, he was elected to the Screen Actors Guild Board of Directors. He was eventually elected president of the union eight times. It's easy to dismiss this as some sort of cushy sinecure in a glamorous profession. But being the head of a union in a high-profile community like Hollywood meant that the stakes were high for Reagan, especially in the age of McCarthyism. The Cold War had begun under President Harry Truman. As we covered in our Truman episode, there was a great deal of paranoia about the spread of communism, not just from Moscow, but also within the United States. Communist spy rings were busted in the United States. Spies like Klaus Fuchs were caught and convicted for passing nuclear secrets to the Soviets. Senator Joe McCarthy gave fiery speeches accusing the State Department and the military of being overrun by communists. There were times when the measures taken to combat subversion at home were reasonable, and there were times when they may have been excessive. Joe McCarthy would go on to target, among many people, the great World War II general, George Marshall, as being soft on communism, which was unwise and unfounded. At any rate, Hollywood was one of those places that was said to have been infiltrated by communists. And it was during this time that Reagan, the liberal Democrat, became a fervent anti-communist. And there were groups like the Hollywood Independent Citizens Committee of the Arts, Sciences, and Professions that were considered by many to be communist fronts. Reagan was also said to have been an informant for the FBI, where he would inform the Bureau of who he suspected of being communist sympathizers. Reagan saw himself as fighting against the communists' strong-arm tactics that were the antithesis of American democracy. I think that that's led some people to believe that Reagan was some sort of McCarthy acolyte. I don't think that's fair. In fact, Reagan worked to clear the names of people who were unfairly painted as communists. More on that later. Reagan also testified before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which included, as one of its members, a young Republican congressman named Richard Nixon. In the fall of 1947, Reagan said the following at a committee hearing. I will be frank with you that as a citizen, I would hesitate or I would not like to see any political party outlawed on the basis of its political ideology because we've spent 170 years in this country on the basis that democracy is strong enough to stand up and fight for itself against the inroads of any ideology, no matter how much we may disagree with it. But at the same time, I never, as a citizen, want to see our country become so... uh, or become urged by either fear or resentment of this group that we ever compromise with any of our democratic principles through that fear or resentment. Well, we agree I with that, I still think too. that democracy can do it. We agree with that. We agree with that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Reagan had found his life's mission, the fight against communism. He was convinced that the Soviets were attempting to rule the world. Later, as president, he had this to say. Uh, I don't have to think of an answer as to what I think their intentions are. They have repeated it. I know of no leader of the Soviet Union since the revolution, including the present leadership, that has not more than once repeated in the various uh, communist congresses they hold their determination that their goal must be the promotion of world revolution and a one-world socialist or communist state whichever word you want to use. 
Reagan won a number of victories on behalf of his colleagues as president of the Screen Actors Guild, like getting actors the right to residual payments for their shows and movies if they are shown on TV. He was pretty popular in that position, winning re-election seven times by wide margins. And he got real experience in governing and negotiating that would serve him well in the future. Unfortunately, his political activities took their toll on his private life. His marriage to Jane Wyman was falling apart. Sadly, she filed for divorce in 1948, which was finalized in the following year. It was a devastating blow for Reagan. His acting career also began to wane. But in 1949, just as his first marriage was ending, things changed and Reagan began a new chapter in his life. An actress named Nancy Davis reached out to him. Apparently, she found herself on the Hollywood blacklist by mistake because another actress named Nancy Davis was suspected of being a communist. Nancy asked Reagan, the Screen Actors Guild president, to help clear her name. They hit it off and she later said that it was, quote, pretty close to love at first sight. They were married in 1952. Two years later, Reagan was hired by General Electric to be the host of their show, General Electric Theater. It was a weekly television drama program. TV was the new medium that was sweeping the nation. Although the show was never at the top of the ratings, it did last for 10 seasons, and gave Reagan even more exposure to the public. Reagan also traveled around the country to speak to GE employees, reaching hundreds of thousands of them. During these trips, Reagan increased his profile with workers across the country. He also honed his public speaking skills and learned firsthand about the issues that faced everyday Americans. As he learned more and more, Reagan, still a Democrat, found himself moving more to the right. When Dwight Eisenhower ran for president in 1952 and 1956, Reagan crossed party lines to vote for him. He believed more and more that the Democratic Party was moving farther to the left into the realm of socialism. By 1960, Reagan was seriously considering changing party affiliation. When Richard Nixon ran for president that year, Reagan supported him, Reagan talked to Nixon about switching parties, but Nixon, ever the strategist, said that it would be more effective if Reagan endorsed him as a Democrat to show that he had bipartisan support. Although Kennedy won the election, the Republicans had won a new convert. Ronald Reagan switched to the GOP in 1962. From then on, Reagan became more and more outspoken in his conservative views. Ever since the Roosevelt years, the Republican Party had been led by centrists like Thomas Dewey, former governor of New York. It was a moderate party that accepted much of FDR's New Deal policies. Dwight Eisenhower, elected twice as a Republican, was moderate in temperament and had been a military man and not a politician for almost his entire pre-presidential career. He was a fairly non-ideological political figure. But there was a rising conservative movement in the Republican Party that looked to push back against the New Deal and to take a hard line on Soviet communism. And after Lyndon Johnson became president in 1963 and began implementing Great Society programs, the conservatives took over the GOP 
and nominated Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater for president in 1964. During that election, Ronald Reagan delivered a speech on behalf of Goldwater that changed his life. In that speech, Reagan laid out his views on domestic issues, his belief that the American people were being taxed too much, and that their liberties were being threatened by an ever-expanding government. But he also made clear his views on the Soviet Union, that it was an immoral, oppressive regime, and that the United States had a moral imperative to confront it. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war, and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. Reagan continued, equating accommodation with the Soviet Union with appeasement. If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right, we cannot buy our security, our freedom from the threat of the bomb, by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom, because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters. Alexander Hamilton said, a nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. Reagan's delivery was impressive. He looked confident, articulate, and bold in conviction. The speech featured several memorable lines and phrases that people would identify with him, like peace through strength. Reagan also borrowed from his old hero, FDR, when he declared that America had a, quote, rendezvous with destiny. Goldwater lost the election that year in a landslide, but another conservative star was born, Ronald Reagan. Soon Reagan was being urged to run for office. He did in 1966 and became the governor of California. He served two terms. Although he made his share of compromises and regretted some of his decisions, like signing a bill that allowed for abortions, he won two terms and remained the face of the conservative movement. It didn't take long until Reagan was being discussed as a possible presidential candidate. He flirted with a run in 1968 in just his second year as governor, but that would be Richard Nixon's year. Nixon won the presidency that year and then won re-election in a landslide in 1972. Reagan completed his two terms as governor in 1975 and looked to 1976 as his turn for the presidency. Nixon would be leaving office, and Reagan could run as his successor. But it was not to be. Nixon resigned in disgrace in 1974 because of the Watergate scandal. That put Gerald Ford, Nixon's vice president, in the White House. Instead of an open seat in the White House, there was now an incumbent Republican president. 
Ford decided that as the sitting president, he would run for his own term in 1976. Reagan would be frozen out. Or would he? Reagan decided to run against Ford for the Republican nomination that year, to do what hadn't been done in a long time, to unseat the president of his own party as the nominee. There was some indication that this might be a good idea. After all, Ford was in a relatively weak position, since he was, in a sense, an accidental president. Reagan came very close to snatching the nomination from Ford. But in the end, Ford prevailed in a close race. Reagan's supporters were disappointed, but fate had much more in store for Ronald Reagan. That fall, Gerald Ford was defeated by Democrat Jimmy Carter, the former governor of Georgia. Carter took office in 1977, but his presidency was weighed down by the ongoing problem of high inflation, the Iran hostage crisis, and an energy crisis. Carter's popularity plummeted. The United States, having gone through Vietnam and Watergate, seemed to be stuck in a rut, or to use a phrase that would be identified with the time, a national malaise. During that time, Ronald Reagan stayed active politically, which included appearing regularly on the radio to share his views on current events. As the 1980 election approached, Jimmy Carter's presidency was falling apart. The winner of the Republican nomination stood a decent chance of winning the presidency. That year, Ronald Reagan defeated his rival, George H.W. Bush, for the nomination. He ended up choosing Bush as his running mate, since Bush was more moderate. It was seen as a choice to unify the party. That fall, Reagan won a landslide victory over Jimmy Carter, winning 44 out of 50 states. At age 69, he was the oldest man ever elected to the White House at that time. On January 20th, 1981, Ronald Reagan took the oath of office to become the 40th president of the United States. Reagan used his formidable communication skills to connect with Americans across the country, both white and blue collar. We hear much of special interest groups. Well, our concern must be for a special interest group that has been too long neglected. It knows no sectional boundaries or ethnic and racial divisions, and it crosses political party lines. It is made up of men and women who raise our food, patrol our streets, man our mines and factories, teach our children, keep our homes, and heal us when we're sick. Professionals, industrialists, shopkeepers, clerks, cabbies, and truck drivers. They are, in short, we the people. This breed called Americans. Reagan also issued a warning to the tyrants of the world. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it, We will not surrender for it, now or ever. Our forbearance should never be misunderstood. Our reluctance for conflict should not be misjudged as a failure of will. 
When action is required to preserve our national security, we will act. We will maintain sufficient strength to prevail if need be, knowing that if we do so, we have the best chance of never having to use that strength. Above all, we must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. As I said earlier, the late 1970s and early 1980s was a time when America was in the doldrums. Even worse, for many Americans, there was a sense that their adversaries were emboldened. A new revolutionary government in Iran had humiliated the United States by taking 52 Americans hostage for over a year. Although the Iranians released the hostages on the day Reagan was sworn in, the damage to America's prestige had been done. Communism seemed to be resurgent. Scholar Mark Katz noted that throughout the 1970s, Marxist movements took over governments in South Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Benin, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Angola, Afghanistan, Nicaragua, and Grenada. The Soviets seemed to be expanding, most clearly with their invasion of Afghanistan but also by providing support for Marxist regimes around the world. And the Soviets had caught up militarily with the U.S. in many ways. Already by the mid-70s, the Soviets led America in intercontinental ballistic missiles 1,600 to 1,000, and in submarine-launched nuclear missiles 780 to about 650. Granted, there's a fair debate about whether this lead meant anything, some felt that, at a certain point, having more nuclear weapons didn't necessarily make you stronger. In the event of nuclear war, having a hundred more nukes than another country would, as they say, just make the asphalt rumble. Either way, by the end of the 1970s, the Soviets had also surpassed America in the size of their conventional forces. They were said to have had four million men in Europe, while the United States and its allies had 2.6 million. The Soviets had 42,500 tanks in Europe, while the West had about 13,000. In 1979, the Soviets announced that it would deploy a new nuclear-armed intermediate-range ballistic missile called the SS-20 to replace its older SS-4 and SS-5 missiles. These SS-20s were very mobile and could be launched in short order. The NATO alliance interpreted this new weapon as a challenge. The U.S., under then-President Carter, responded by announcing it would station a medium-range missile of its own, the Pershing II, 
as well as ground-launch cruise missiles in Western Europe by 1983. Tensions were increasing between the superpowers. In the Western world, debate raged about how to handle the Soviets. There was opposition from some in Europe to the deployment because they believed that the Pershings and the cruise missiles would destabilize the situation further. Some Europeans feared that having so many missiles pointed at each other would increase the threat of nuclear war. Others believed that the American deployment was needed to deter the Soviets. Throughout his career up until then, Reagan sounded the warning bells about the strength of the Soviet Union and the decline of American power. Back in 1976, he had said, quote, The evidence mounts that we are number two in a world where it's dangerous, if not fatal, to be second best. But Reagan's view of the Soviet Union was more nuanced. Yes, the Kremlin had fearsome weapons of war, but that masked a fundamental weakness, their command economy. Sure, the Soviets could impose demands and requirements on their own people. They could force their best scientists and engineers to come up with solutions like splitting the atom, building weapons, or going to space. The Soviets had their achievements. But a command economy could only do so much. It imposed rules that restricted what people could do, how much of their money they could keep, and what they could own. In the long run, it couldn't promote innovation. It couldn't provide its people with new economic opportunities. Leonid Brezhnev had been in charge of the Soviet Union since 1964. We met him back during the Nixon episode. Although he had presided over the massive Soviet buildup, by then he was past his prime, about 73 years old, and he was starting to lose it. He was doddering by then, and had imposed a massive cult of personality that fashioned him as a great Soviet leader in the tradition of Lenin and Stalin. But behind all the salutes and feigned loyalty, people were mocking him behind his back. He had also failed to develop other areas of the Soviet economy. So, as a result, the Soviet Union was full of military might, but was, in actuality, weak. Its economy was in a precarious state, highly dependent on the oil and gas industries. It was barely producing enough food to feed its own people. In 1980, Russia's GDP per capita was about a third of the United States. Reagan saw that Soviet weakness, its inability to meet its citizens' basic needs, even before he entered the White House. And he felt that, although America was in a slump, it was fundamentally strong and could outlast the Soviets in the long run. In 1975, in a radio address, Reagan said, quote, One thing is certain. The threat of hunger to the Russian people is due to the Soviet obsession with military power. Nothing proves the failure of Marxism more than the Soviet Union's inability to produce weapons for its military ambitions and at the same time provide for their people's everyday needs. In 1976, Reagan said, quote, The Russians know they can't match us industrially or technologically. During another radio address in the 70s, Reagan talked about reaching out to Soviet citizens saying we, quote, could have an unexpected ally if Citizen Ivan is becoming discontented enough to start talking back. Maybe we should drop a few million typical mail-order catalogs on minks and pinks in Moscow to whet their appetites. 
Reagan seemed to be saying that those millions of people behind the Iron Curtain might be coaxed into rising up against their oppressors if they knew just how bad they had it and how much better democracy and capitalism could be. In 1980, Reagan gave an interview where he said, quote, They know that if we turned our full industrial might into an arms race, they cannot keep pace with us. Why haven't we played that card? According to Ronald Reagan's close aide and his first national security advisor, Richard Allen, Reagan told him in 1977, quote, My idea of American policy toward the Soviet Union is simple, and some would say simplistic. It is this. We win and they lose. There are those who believe that Richard Allen was telling the truth, and those who believe that he was exaggerating Reagan's role as a mastermind who orchestrated the end of the Cold War. Regardless of what one believes, it's clear that Reagan believed in something that few experts did, that the Soviet Union was weak and was at risk of collapsing. In his first year in office, Reagan repeatedly spoke of some sort of end to Soviet communism. At a commencement address in Notre Dame in May 1981, Reagan said the following. The years, the years ahead are great ones for this country, for the cause of freedom and the spread of civilization. The West won't contain communism. It'll transcend communism. It won't bother to dismiss or denounce it. It will dismiss it as some bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages are even now being written. When uprisings broke out in Poland against Soviet rule, Reagan said in June of 1981 the following. Well, what I meant then in my remarks at Notre Dame and what I believe now about what we're seeing tie together. I just think that it is impossible, and history reveals this, for any form of government to completely deny freedom to people and have that uh, go on interminably, there eventually comes an end to it. And I think the things we're seeing not only in Poland, but the reports that are beginning to come out of Russia itself about the younger generation and its resistance to uh, long-time government controls is an indication that communism is an aberration. It's not a normal way of living for human beings. and. I think we are uh, seeing the first beginning cracks, the beginning of the end. In our previous episodes, we discussed how containment evolved from one administration to another and how they focused on different things. We saw how Dwight Eisenhower feared that America might spend itself into oblivion and relied heavily on the threat of nuclear weapons under a strategy called massive retaliation. We saw how Kennedy and Johnson increased the U.S. defense budget and implemented flexible response in an attempt to widen the range of options for American presidents to deter the Soviets. We saw how Nixon adjusted American foreign policy with a recognition of America's limitations and moved towards detente. But as John Lewis Gaddis notes in his book, Strategies of Containment, Reagan took a different direction. Instead of focusing on America's capabilities, he now focused squarely on the Soviet Union's shortcomings. To be sure, his predecessors considered Moscow's weaknesses and tried to exploit them. But most CIA estimates throughout the Cold War exaggerated Soviet strength, 
perhaps as a way to hedge their bets. Intelligence agencies often have reason to play up threats as a way to cover themselves so that they can't be accused of not recognizing the threat later on. An industry supported by billions of dollars of defense spending had an interest in playing up Soviet strength. As I said earlier, many American commentators saw the Soviet Union as a fact of life. But Reagan saw a fundamental weakness in the Soviets that few others saw. And during this time, early in his presidency, he felt that he had a critical opportunity to exploit it. Reagan saw divisions within the Soviet bloc, and in his first year as president, he wrote in his diary, quote, We can't let this revolution against communism fail without offering a hand. We may never have an opportunity like this in our lifetime. Over the first two years of his administration, Reagan and his team crafted a strategy to exploit that opportunity. It would become known as the Reagan Doctrine, and it was a dramatic departure from the years of detente. In previous decades, America generally adhered to a containment strategy to prevent Soviet expansion, rather than the more aggressive policy of rollback or removing the Soviets from where they already were. I say generally because there were definitely examples of rollback throughout the decades, like the occasional overthrow of a government friendly to the Soviets. But those were the exceptions to the rule. Containment was the default strategy. Under Reagan, that would change. Containment was out and rollback was in. The new strategy was spelled out in a series of government documents known as National Security Decision Directives, or NSDDs. NSDD 32, published in May 1982, declared that the U.S. would seek, quote, to contain and reverse the expansion of Soviet control and military presence throughout the world. NSDD 75, published in January 1983, spelled this out in broader terms affirming that the U.S. would, quote, contain and over time reverse Soviet expansionism by competing effectively on a sustained basis with the Soviet Union in all international areas, particularly in overall military balance and in geographical regions of priority concern to the United States. It also called for encouraging the Soviets to change, declaring that the U.S. would, quote, promote within narrow limits available to us the process of change in the Soviet Union toward a more pluralistic political and economic system in which the power of the privileged elite is gradually reduced. In other words, the U.S. could prevail if the Soviet system was changed somehow to become less aggressive and more cooperative. How exactly that change would happen and what it would look like, whether it would come in the form of reform or revolution, had yet to be determined. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.
Reagan was rebooting American Cold War policy, and he planned to do so by confronting the Soviets on multiple fronts from a position of strength. That meant boosting America's military. Over the next five years, Reagan pushed through $1.5 trillion in new defense spending. This included increased funding for various weapon systems, like the new MX missile, which could carry 10 nuclear warheads, the B-1 bomber, the Trident submarine-launched ballistic missile, cruise missiles, the neutron bomb, the F-14 fighter, and two new aircraft carrier groups. Confronting the Soviets also meant making war with the Soviets, not necessarily with bullets, but with dollars and rubles. The idea here was to wage economic and technological war against the Soviets, starving them of cash and material that they could use to strengthen their military or strategic position. NSDD-75 mandated the, quote, prevention of the transfer of technology and equipment and the, quote, subsidizing of the Soviet economy. Some of this would come in the form of sanctions to discourage companies and countries from doing business with the Soviets, especially when it came to buying Soviet oil and gas. It also meant opposition to the Trans-Siberian Pipeline being built that would provide Europe with gas from Siberia. Many American allies supported the pipeline, as did American businesses. They all stood to benefit from the pipeline, but Reagan held firm, despite considerable opposition. He reportedly said, quote, Well, they can have their damn pipeline, but not with American equipment and not with American technology. It was all part of his effort to limit Soviet cash flow. As I said earlier, rollback was now American policy. But the question was how to roll back a superpower with a powerful military. American foreign policy experts knew that starting a hot war with the Soviets would be catastrophic, so this would require creative solutions. NSDD-75 discussed rolling back Soviet influence over the Third World and over those nations the Soviets ruled in Eastern Europe. The document read, quote, The U.S. effort in the Third World must involve an important role for security assistance and foreign military sales, as well as readiness to use U.S. military forces where necessary to protect vital interests and support endangered allies and friends. When it came to Afghanistan, it stated, quote, the U.S. objective is to keep maximum pressure on Moscow for withdrawal and to ensure that the Soviets' political, military, and other costs remain high while the occupation continues. When it came to Eastern Europe, it read, quote, The primary U.S. objective is to loosen Moscow's hold on the region. This strategy required supplying aid, from cash to equipment and even weapons, to those fighting against communist rule in those countries. In Poland, the Solidarity Movement rose up to challenge communist rule. Reagan believed that Poland could hold the key to toppling the Soviet Empire. In his diary in the summer of 1981, Reagan wrote, quote, Here is the first major break in the Red Dyke, Poland's disenchantment with Soviet communism. Reagan authorized the CIA to provide covert aid like cash, equipment, and use of propaganda. The CIA even had a mole in the Polish army. Colonel Ryszard Kuklinski, a senior officer on the Polish general staff, who provided key intelligence on the regime in Warsaw. Reagan also reached out to Pope John Paul II, the first Polish pope ever, who would lend his own prestige in support of the Solidarity Movement. When it came to Afghanistan, 
President Carter had begun supporting the rebel group, the Mujahideen, to the tune of a few tens of millions of dollars per year. That number skyrocketed into the hundreds of millions under Reagan and would total a few billion dollars. Eventually, Reagan would provide the Mujahideen with anti-aircraft Stinger missiles, which would wreak havoc on Soviet helicopters. Reagan's policy also meant waging a propaganda war. NSDD-75 read, quote, U.S. policy must have an ideological thrust which clearly affirms the superiority of U.S. and Western values of individual dignity and freedom over repressive features of Soviet communism. It called for highlighting, quote, Soviet human rights violations and, quote, preventing the Soviet propaganda machine from seizing the semantic high ground in the battle of ideas. The United States would make use of venues like Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America, which were broadcast so that they could be picked up in Eastern European nations to publicize Soviet atrocities and highlight American support for oppressed peoples. Reagan also used the bully pulpit of the presidency to attack the Soviets and reframe the terms of the debate. He went on the rhetorical offensive. Nine days into his presidency, Reagan attacked the Soviets in no uncertain terms. And as long as they at the same time have openly and publicly declared that the only morality they recognize is what will further their cause, meaning they reserve unto themselves the right to commit any crime, to lie, to cheat, in order to attain that, and that is moral, not immoral. And we operate on a different set of standards. I think when you do business with them, uh, even at a detente, you keep that in mind. In June of 1982, before the British Parliament, Reagan delivered one of his most famous speeches, where he called out the Soviet Union for its fundamental weakness and expressed his belief that this was a unique time, a turning point, that could ultimately lead to the collapse of the Soviet system. It may not be easy to see, but I believe we live now at a turning point. In an ironic sense, Karl Marx was right. We are witnessing today a great revolutionary crisis, a crisis where the demands of the economic order are conflicting directly with those of the political order. But the crisis is happening not in the free, non-Marxist West, but in the home of Marxist-Leninism, the Soviet Union. It is the Soviet Union that runs against the tide of history by denying human freedom and human dignity to its citizens. It also is in deep economic difficulty. The rate of growth in the national product has been steadily declining since the 50s and is less than half of what it was then. The dimensions of this failure are astounding. A country which employs one-fifth of its population in agriculture is unable to feed its own people. Were it not for the private sector, the tiny private sector tolerated in Soviet agriculture, the country might be on the brink of famine. Reagan continued, saying, I have discussed on other occasions, including my address on May 9th, the elements of Western policies toward the Soviet Union to safeguard our interests and protect the peace. What I'm describing now is a plan and a hope for the long term, the march of freedom and democracy which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of the people. 
Reagan was declaring here that he had a plan of action, one that would result in the collapse of totalitarian communist governments. He believed that the world was at a critical turning point in history. The United States had a chance to win a victory for freedom because of the Soviet Union's internal weaknesses. In March of 1983, Reagan spoke to the National Association of Evangelicals in Orlando, Florida, reaffirmed America's moral superiority over the Soviet Union. So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. You know, I've always believed that old screw tape reserved his best efforts for those of you in the church. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely Uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. There have been many critics who deny that Reagan really represented anything new as far as Cold War policy goes. They say that Reagan's supporters exaggerate his role, and that he was merely continuing his predecessor's containment policies. But the evidence says otherwise. There was a big difference between containment and Reagan's new aggressive policies. Jean-Louis Gaddis, professor at Yale University and the dean of Cold War historians, wrote in his book Strategies of Containment, quote, No administration prior to Reagan's had deliberately sought to exploit those tensions with a view to destabilizing the Kremlin leadership and accelerating the decline of the regime it ran. Gaddis noted that the Carter administration did note America's strengths and how, quote, the Soviet Union continues to face major internal economic and national difficulties. But according to Gaddis, quote, it failed to build on this insight, though recommending instead efforts to secure Moscow's cooperation. This was a far cry from Reagan's policies, which called for exploiting Soviet weaknesses. Even the New York Times' no-Reagan fanbase acknowledged the shift. On September 23, 1982, the Times published the article with the headline, quote, After detente, the goal is to prevail. It read, quote, From President Truman through President Johnson, the watchword on policy toward the Soviet Union was containment. From President Nixon through President Carter, it was detente. With President Reagan, it is emerging in the phrase, quote, to prevail. Quote, we believe the free world can prevail, Thomas C. Reed, a special assistant to the president, said in a speech. Prevailing with pride is the primary objective. Reagan had changed America's goals in the Cold War, from containment to victory. Of course, many of Reagan's opponents thought his actions were dangerous and destabilizing. New York Governor Mario Cuomo said Reagan had, quote, an hysterical commitment to an arms race that leads nowhere. Senator Ted Kennedy proclaimed, quote, we must demand a national leadership which will spend less time preparing for nuclear war and more time preventing one and other critics felt Reagan's belief that the Soviet Union could be toppled was a fantasy. Arthur Schlesinger, one of the nation's most famous historians, said in 1982, quote, Those in the U.S. who think the Soviet Union is on the verge of economic and social collapse 
ready with one small push to go over the brink, or only kidding themselves. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Though Reagan's foreign policy plans were ambitious, he first had to deal with an ailing economy at home. Reagan could talk tough all he wanted, but in the end, a military buildup and victory in the Cold War could only be fueled by a strong economy. It was the foundation of everything he needed to do. And he had his work cut out for him. Unemployment was relatively high, between 7 and 8% in 1981. Inflation was at 13.5%. Many believed that taxes were too high. The highest marginal income tax rate was about 70%. Conservative economists argued that this slowed down economic growth. I won't get into all of the details. That could be a whole other episode. But Reagan got massive tax relief passed and continued a major deregulation effort that had been underway since the Carter administration. He also supported some very painful measures by the Federal Reserve to tame inflation. At one point, Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker raised rates to over 21%, tightening the money supply to get rid of that pesky inflation. The recovery wasn't easy. In 1982, unemployment almost hit 11%, the highest since the Great Depression, and the GOP paid for it during the midterm elections by losing 27 seats in the House. But things turned the corner after that. Unemployment began falling, as did inflation, which plummeted down to 3.2% in 1983. Things were looking up by 1983, and that was critical to Reagan's efforts against Soviet communism. Actions speak louder than words. Even though Reagan talked tough, he also backed it up with a number of actions. In Reagan's mind, this would signal to the Soviets that he couldn't be pushed around. The first opportunity came completely unexpectedly, and it was a moment that shocked and scared the nation. Just months into his presidency, on March 30, 1981, President Reagan was delivering a speech at the Washington Hilton Hotel. As he stepped out of the hotel to get into his limo, shots rang out. Pandemonium broke out as agents, police officers, and bystanders reacted, taking down the would-be assassin, a man named John Hinckley. Secret Service agent Jerry Parr shoved Reagan into the limo, where it became clear that he had been shot. A bullet had struck his lung, hitting less than one inch from his heart. Parr ordered them to George Washington University Hospital. Four men were struck with bullets, including Reagan's press secretary, James Brady, and Reagan himself. Word broke out that the assassination attempt had occurred, and later on that Reagan had been hit. It was a traumatic moment for the country, less than two decades removed from the Kennedy assassination. Despite the fact that Reagan lost over half of his total blood supply, the wound was not fatal. It also helped that he was in very good health, despite being the oldest president ever elected. Reagan underwent surgery and remained in the hospital for about two weeks. 
In the midst of the crisis, he kept his good humor. When he saw his wife, Nancy, he said, quote, Honey, I forgot to duck. Right before the surgery, he told the medical professionals, quote, I hope you're all Republicans. They all laughed, and one of them, Joseph Giordano, a liberal Democrat, replied, Today, Mr. President, we're all Republicans. Reagan survived, and the world saw a man who handled a life-threatening situation calmly and even with some comic relief. Reagan's approval rating shot up to 73%. Although it wasn't planned, Reagan demonstrated toughness and resilience while literally coming under fire. Just an aside, Jerry Parr, the agent who got Reagan out of harm's way and to the hospital, was later recognized for his actions and given several commendations. By a remarkable coincidence, Parr had been inspired to join the Secret Service when he watched the 1939 film Code of the Secret Service. The star of the movie? Ronald Reagan. Ironically, Reagan would later say that it was, quote, the worst picture I ever made, and that, quote, never has an egg of such dimensions been laid. The next opportunity Reagan had to project strength came when the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, known as PATCO, went on strike on August 3, 1981. 13,000 controllers walked out after talks with the FAA fell apart. They had sought a wage increase and a reduction of their work week. 7,000 flights were canceled due to the strike, a nightmare coming during the peak of summer travel season. In 1955, Congress passed a law making these kinds of strikes illegal, and the Supreme Court upheld the law in 1971. Despite the fact that Patco had endorsed Reagan in 1980, he ordered the controllers to get back to work in the interests of national safety. When most of them refused, he fired them. He then banned the strikers from being rehired ever again. In October of that year, the Federal Labor Relations Authority decertified Patco. Reagan, the former union leader, had broken the Air Traffic Controllers Union. In addition to his shows of strength, Reagan employed psychological measures against the Soviets. State Department historian James Graham Wilson wrote that Reagan had the U.S. Air Force and Navy send fighters and bombers to probe the Soviet defense perimeter. According to Strategic Air Command General Jack Chain, quote, We would send bombers over the North Poles, and radars, speaking of Soviet radars, would click on. Other times, fighter bombers would probe their Asian or European periphery. Wilson quotes one Undersecretary of State who said of the flights, quote, It really got to them. They didn't know what it all meant. A squadron would fly straight at Soviet airspace and their radars would light up and units would go on alert. Then, at last minute, the squadron would peel off and return home. The Reagan administration did face setbacks, sometimes grievous ones. In August of 1982, Reagan sent about 1,400 Marines to join a multinational force in Lebanon. As you might recall from a previous episode, President Eisenhower had sent forces to Lebanon back in 1958 upon invitation from the government in Beirut to restore order. The mission was a success, so there was precedent for the deployment. This time, Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization had been fighting, and when a ceasefire was forged, the multinational force was sent to enforce it. Things seemed to be going well, but in April of 1983, a car bomb exploded at the U.S. Embassy in West Beirut, 
killing 63 people, including 17 Americans. And then, on October 23, 1983, a truck packed with 12,000 pounds of explosives crashed into the front gates of the U.S. Marine Barracks in Beirut. The explosion destroyed the foundation of the building, causing it to collapse. 241 Marines and sailors were killed, the greatest number of U.S. Marines lost since the Battle of Iwo Jima in World War II. Hezbollah, a Lebanese terrorist group, was later implicated in the attack. There were indications that Iran and Syria were involved. The U.S. was stunned by what had happened. Reagan called it a, quote, despicable act, and his administration promised to stay the course and keep the force in Lebanon. There was talk within the administration to respond to the attack, but congressional support for the mission began to wane. Within four months, February 1984, the Marines had fully withdrawn from Lebanon. It was likely the wise thing to do, preventing the United States from getting bogged down in a conflict in the Middle East especially in light of Reagan's plans to take on the Soviet Union. America was reeling from the Beirut bombings, but another crisis in a different part of the world gave Reagan a chance to reassert American power. Grenada is a small island country in the Caribbean. For centuries, it was part of the British Empire and obtained independence in 1974. It remained part of the British Commonwealth and still is today. In March of 1979, a Marxist Leninist movement in the country called the New Jewel Movement overthrew the government and established a new regime under a man named Maurice Bishop. After taking office, Bishop established relations with Castro's Cuba. He also built an airport with help from international consultants, including some who came from Cuba. President Reagan believed that this was a cover for building an airstrip that could be used by the Soviets. Remember, at this time, the Soviets and Cuba were supporting Marxist movements around the world, including in Central American countries like El Salvador and Nicaragua. Cubans were said to have been involved in the building of the airport. Reagan's critics to this day, however, argue that there is no evidence to support that claim. Now, while Bishop had relations with the Soviet Union, he also wanted to keep Grenada non-aligned. Some say he was also moving toward more moderate economic policies, hoping to attract foreign investment. And Bishop's supporters point to his efforts to grant greater equality to women and to policies that help the poor and improve literacy. But at the same time, Bishop banned all other political parties, elections, and free expression. Bishop's government also established the People's Revolutionary Army, which some said committed human rights violations against the populace. At any rate, Bishop's government broke into factions, and one of them was led by a man named Bernard Cord, a politician part of the New Jewel movement. He had actually studied in the United States at one point, as well as England, and had been involved in communist parties in both countries. Cord's faction wanted Bishop to step down or allow them to have a greater say over government. When Bishop refused, Cord's group launched a coup of their own and had Bishop placed under house arrest. When that happened, chaos erupted and demonstrations broke out across the country. Bishop actually managed to escape for a time, but Cord had the army recapture and then execute him. In the midst of the chaos, a military official named Hudson Austin seized power and installed military rule. The new government was seen as more pro-communist than the more moderate government under Bishop. 
It imposed a total curfew for four days, with orders to shoot anyone on site who violated it. The Governor General of Grenada, Paul Schoon, secretly requested that the United States intervene. Schoon also found himself placed under house arrest. The Organization of East Caribbean States, as well as Barbados and Jamaica, also asked the United States to help restore order. Reagan complied and also cited the presence of American citizens on the island and the fear that if American hostages were taken, it would turn into a similar situation that President Carter faced in Iran. On October 25, 1983, two days after the deadly Marine barracks bombings in Lebanon, the United States commenced Operation Urgent Fury and invaded Grenada. A little over 7,000 Americans would serve in the operation, consisting of men and women from the Army's 1st and 2nd Ranger Battalions, the Delta Force, and the 82nd Airborne Division, as well as the Marines and the Navy SEALs. The Rangers led an airborne assault on the southern tip of the island, while the Marines landed at the northern tip. In a televised speech to the nation, Reagan said the following. Last weekend, I was awakened in the early morning hours and told that six members of the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, joined by Jamaica and Barbados, had sent an urgent request that we join them in a military operation to restore order and democracy to, Gren to Grenada. They were proposing this action under the terms of a treaty, a mutual assistance pact that existed among them. These small, peaceful nations needed our help. Three of them don't have armies at all, and the others have very limited forces. The legitimacy of their request, plus my own concern for our citizens, dictated my decision. I believe our government has a responsibility to go to the aid of its citizens if their right to life and liberty is threatened. The nightmare of our hostages in Iran must never be repeated. When the operation was over, the U.S. had lost about 19 men, while Grenada had lost 45 men. The Cubans and the Soviets also suffered casualties. The resistance melted away. Hudson Austin's government was deposed, and a new government, led by Paul Schoon, was installed. The governments of Britain, Canada, and other countries were not pleased by the invasion. The UN General Assembly labeled it, quote, a flagrant violation of international law and voted overwhelmingly for a statement against it. But militarily, the invasion was a great success. By December, the U.S. had left Grenada. The following year, elections were held on the island, leading to the free and peaceful election of Herbert Blaise. The island has enjoyed peaceful and free elections ever since. Although the invasion had its critics inside and outside the U.S., the fact of the matter is that before the invasion, Grenada was ruled by authoritarian communist governments, and after it, it was free and peaceful. And the success of the invasion restored American confidence in their military. Ever since the disaster in Vietnam, Americans were leery of the use of force, a feeling many called the, quote, Vietnam Syndrome. The victory reminded the country that their military was still the greatest in the world. In his speech, Reagan cited the link between the events in Lebanon and Grenada in the broader struggle against communism. The events in Lebanon and Grenada, though oceans apart, are closely related. Not only has Moscow assisted and encouraged the violence in both countries, but it provides direct support through a network of surrogates and terrorists. It is no coincidence that when the thugs tried to wrest control over Grenada, 
There were 30 Soviet advisors and hundreds of Cuban military and paramilitary forces on the island. At the moment of our landing, we communicated with the governments of Cuba and the Soviet Union and told them we would offer shelter and security to their people on Grenada. Regrettably, Castro ordered his men to fight to the death, and some did. The others will be sent to their homelands. And there was another connection. Historian H.W. Brands later observed, quote, at least at a psychological, maybe even a moral level, Reagan was doing something in Grenada that he wanted to do in Lebanon but couldn't. He could do it in Grenada. He could show the world that the United States would take action to defend its interests. Some historians said that Reagan was lucky to have had such an easy victory on a small Caribbean island to wipe away the memory of what had happened in Lebanon. I think that this is an easy thing to say, but as historian Paul Kenger notes, even smaller military adventures are not guaranteed successes. Just look at America's experience in the Bay of Pigs crisis under President Kennedy, or the attempted helicopter rescue of the hostages under President Carter, or the humanitarian mission in Somalia under Presidents Bush and Clinton. Either way, it was a triumph for the Reagan administration, one that has even met the approval of many in Grenada. The island now celebrates the date of the invasion as a national holiday. Reagan had flexed America's muscle. He proved that he could back up strong words with strong actions when it came to confronting the communists. But there was another side to Ronald Reagan, a side that was terrified of the prospect of nuclear war and was hoping to end its threat to humanity. He had an audacious, some would even say foolhardy plan that he hoped would accomplish just that. But he waited for the right moment to reveal it. That moment and Reagan's quest to make the world a safer place is the story of the next episode of This American President. We wanted to thank Kolyo Vanchev and Melina Spatharis for all of their help in the last few months. We started an internship this past summer, and they were our inaugural class. Kolyo assisted with the audio production and is beginning a master's in audio engineering at Middle Tennessee State University. Melina helped with research and writing, and she's currently attending Temple University. Thanks again, Kolyo and Melina. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. A special thanks to Jennifer Mazella, Kolyo Vanchev, and Melina Spatharis for their help in producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We're a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. For more information about President Reagan, check out Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis, The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan by James Mann, Reagan's Secret War by Martin and Annalise Anderson, The Triumph of Improvisation by James Graham Wilson, and Crusader by Paul Kenger. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. 
Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. 